Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 63, where we're going to cover the findings from the SDIS related to the month of April 2023. My name is Edison Magalhães here at the SDIS studio. Hi, my name is Giovanni at the SDRS. Hi, my name is Guilherme, also at SDRS. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also at the SDRS. And today, as I mentioned, we're going to start our discussion and we will cover the findings from the previous month of the SDRS. And also after that, we have the pleasure to have here our invited guest, uh, Dr. Amy Mashoff. Uh, we have the pleasure of having her here today. Dr. Mashoff, she's the, the director of health for the Mashoffs, joining the, the SDRS here with us today. And she earned her veterinary degree from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And since graduation, started to work in the Mashoffs company as a herd veterinarian. Uh, and Dr. Mashoff and the, the Mashoff's Health Assurance team implemented a whole system in mycoplasma uh, high-ammonia elimination program, which will be our podcast main topic today. Thanks and welcome to the SDIS podcast. Thanks. Looking forward to chatting with you guys today about mycoplasma. That'd be a great discussion. Thank you for being first today, Amy. And before we go for that discussion, Guilherme, what are the main finds from the SDIS report from the month of April? Yeah, let's start for the first page, for the PERS virus page. Uh, the overall percentage of positive emissions maintained stable in April. So it's the third consecutive month that you have like the overall positivity in around 25% of all the submissions being positive for PERS. But at the state level monitoring, we are seeing an increased activity in Kansas and Ohio that continues to have uh, the percentage of positive emissions above the baseline. Moving on a little bit right now to the sequencing part of the PERS, uh, the L1C detection are still concentrated in the Midwest states, and Missouri still have the high number of sequences assigned as L1C. And for example, in April, it was 41 sequences that were classified as L1C variants in the state of Missouri. And also this month, I would like to say to our audience that we have a bonus page in our PDF report that is going to bring like the main strains detector in the U.S. per state, so you can see the dynamics of PERS that is going on right now in the country. Great information there. So take a look on the bonus page. And what's the comments from the advisory group about these PERS virus detection? Yeah, regarding the PERS virus sequencing, the advisory group mentioned that the clinical outcomes vary within and among strains. So for example, uh, they give an example of the L1H184, um, the RFLP, that in some specific states, the advisory group deal with this strain and they have like a mild to moderate clinical outcome. And in other specific states, they have a severe clinical sign and a persistent infection. So uh, even though you can get like a different lineage or a, or a different RFP, RFLP are the same, you, we would like to remember that the OR5 region that is sequenced is only 4% of the PERS virus genome. So sometimes you can get the same classification, but the clinical outcome might be different. In summary, lots of PERS viability out there, and each region is suffering from one different strain, not all the same. So that's get great information for sharing the device group. And how about the enteric coronavirus? Any updates there? Yes, moving to the enteric coronavirus, PED, the percentage of positive emission is within inspected for the month of April. Uh, we are getting the end of the winter right now, so the activity is uh, trending to decrease. And however, uh, is within inspected in this month at the state level, South Dakota, Nebraska, Missouri, and North Carolina are having an increased activity of this virus. It's interesting to see that. And one other question, uh, topic that we discussed last month was that Delta coronavirus formed this two-year trend of increasing detection and 
creating this cycle. So it's something different that we have been observed that. Thank you for that. And how about Mycoplasma, Hyomon, Influenza, and PCV2? Any updates for those three agents? Uh, uh, only before, like the Mycoplasma, just to complete the P, the Delta coronavirus that Giovanni mentioned, uh, we are having like still increased activity in April uh, in, in this month. And for the second consecutive month, and 60% of these positive submissions are coming to the win to finish uh, sites. And when we move to the state level monitoring, South Dakota, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Illinois are the main states with increased activity of these virus. And moving right now to the mycoplasma, influenza, and PCV2, that they are the other pathogens that we have in our report. Uh, for the PCV2, we still have increased activity uh, in cell farms that are coming a lot of positive submissions for PCV2. And when we look to the samples that are submitted, 90% of these positive submissions are processing fluids coming from cell farm. And when we look to the historical database as well, in the month of March, the last month, we had the highest number of submissions for PCV2 that is represent overall 20% more submissions compared with the monthly submissions that we have in the past. And regarding mycoplasma is within inspected for the month of April, However, there was a moderate increase in the percentage of positive emissions that were coming from the uh, winter market category. And last for the influenza, uh, we would like to highlight the influenza subtype PCR that we have in our report, that we have a moderate increase in the mixed infections in April. And just to highlight for our audience, a mixed infection we determined by when we have a detection of two of three or more amaglutinins and neuraminidas in one sample. So one example could like detect the H1, H3, and N1 in one only sample. For these PCV2 detection cell farm, it's important to highlight that the data is signaling for some change in trend of submissions that, that occur from cell farm. So there is a submission of more frequency being uh, submitted for testing. So that not necessarily means that we have increased activity, but more surveillance being done in that age category. Right. So it's a background information there. And how about tissue diagnosis? Any update there? Yes, for the tissue diagnosis that only in, at Iowa State University, uh, during the end of March, um, between the weeks of March 20 and March, and March 27, we have spikes on the confirmed tissue diagnosis for the enteric disease uh, for the specific weeks. And in the end of March and beginning of April, more specifically the week of April 4th, even though it was a small number of cases, we have uh, alerts for the number of Lausonia intracellular case in the VDL. And so PCV2 in the terms of tissue diagnosis, it's still stable. It is still stable. So it's more coming from processing fluid samples that what Giovanni mentioned that could be more related to the monitoring part. I know that the discussion is with Michael Plasma and with Dr. Marshall, here, our, our guest, but can't lose the opportunity to pick her brain on that. Based on what she heard, hears and, and sees, what does it mean an increased? So people are uh, submitting more uh, processing fluids for PCV2, but not necessarily seeing more disease. Is it just people are more aware? Are they monitoring closely? What's What's going on in there? I think uh, in my perspective, we've had some really good speakers at conferences in the last few years talk about how you use those diagnostic tools to make uh, implementation or protocol decisions. And so I think you're probably seeing more and more people try to learn and figure out how you use the diagnostics to influence those production system or site level implementations, either of 
vaccines, timing, herd management processes. So I would anticipate we're just learning and continuing to understand how the diagnostics tie to production performance as well as protocol use. Mm -hmm. Very good, guys. Thanks for, for the update, Guilherme and Giovanni, for the, for the month of April of the SDRS. Now let's move on to our discussion with the, uh, Dr. Mashoff. Uh, Dr. Mashoff, regarding the mycoplasma elimination, uh, what were the motivations behind it for the Mashoff systems to go through the mycoplasma elimination? Uh, which information and analysis supported the decision? Can you give us a little bit of background and overview how the situation is today? Sure, we'd be happy to share that. So uh, for those that aren't aware, we are a production system that has all the way from multiplication into finishing pigs. So most of our system revenue is from actually selling and having pigs hanging on a shackle. So we have partners that we work with that. And so any system level strategy or motivation, I think is important for those to understand how our system is designed because that definitely influences how we make those decisions. And so when we look at those, we wanna find any type of change within our systems gonna have to have a full production system, economic impact and benefit to that. And so there were, you know, in 2012, 2014, people like Maria Peters, Paul Yeski that were out in the industry talking about how important mycoplasma was and thinking through elimination. And we had some, some of them come in and talk to our system and gave us some expert advice of here are some examples of how you can manage mycoplasma and have success against it. And so then like a, a good internal mash-off system, as you guys all that have worked with us know, we're going to still do some internal data evaluation and get that in front of our um, accounting team, controller team. And so we did an inter internal system um, evaluation of what those would look like. And so from an economic benefit, we said, okay, if we can get improvements in average daily gain, feed conversion rate, um, mortality, especially on the growing finishing side of pigs where feed costs are higher, the you feel the mortality differently from an economic and people labor impact, as well as just thinking about stewardship and antibiotic use. And that's been a conversation that we've had more and more in the system this year of, I think in retrospect, I look at that and I don't know that we emphasized how important just thinking about the antibiotic stewardship is as it relates to mycoplasma and thinking through that. And now um, that we have eliminated it in our breed doing system, I just continue to emphasize that with people that it's exciting on how judicious we can be with those pigs that are over 12 weeks placed into a finishing barn. And frankly, um, in those years in 2014 and 2015, the timing was just right for our system relative to what we were seeing in production data and in some unfortunate events that happened in our multiplication system. And so when you think about that, all of those things are important, but I also think that the timing has to be right too. And for us at that time, when we started our elimination process, the timing really was right for us. And a lot of some a lot of reasons, right? So the right thing for the pig, for for profits, and for one health seems like so. And uh, so I understand there will there will be a lot of potential interventions, right? How do you go by choosing which ones to implement in the system, and how do you do it? How how do you pull the trigger? It's a big system. 
it, I would tell you it wasn't easy. Um, the more that I've talked about mycoplasma with others, the more I kind of think about how we've thought about this system management of disease process. And I think the first thing for us was thinking through when the timing is going to be right for those individual herds and how you think about pig flow impact. Like I said, we have multiplication farms in our system as well as commercial farms in our system. And at the time we had even more genetic assets in our system. And so unfortunately we had had a PERS break happen in several of our multipliers. So there was gonna be some major decisions of how we were gonna manage those herds. And in those first few years of management, it was all focused in those herds. We let those commercial systems and commercial sites still experience mycoplasma. Because I think when you're thinking about those systems approach, you can't just go blanket and impact everything from a, a flow, a pig supply perspective that wasn't going to work for us. And so there's a there was a multi-phase um, application of how we attacked mycoplasma. So we started um, going through elimination projects in that multiplication system and then moved into what uh, we called the sledgehammer approach. So we knew we were going to cause within that drastic instability in guilt acclimation and guilt flow programs at the time. So our sledgehammer what is utilizing quite a few antibiotics during that time because of the instability we caused as we went through those initial genetic asset multiplication and eliminations. And then in that multi-phase approach, we do have a system regional model. So you can imagine that there were lots of lessons learned because there were tons of variations of how we approached the closure plan, the elimination plans, how we acclimated guilt, what our antibiotic choices were in those herds, how much our individual region production systems were willing to spend on each of those closures. So it was not a one-size-fits-all approach when we really first started going through mycoplasma eliminations. It was more a precision, uh, a, a strategic approach, right? Personalized and tailored for each type of herd. Yeah, so as we went through that, Daniel, there was um, a lot of those herds that if a commercial farm broke with PERS, that timing worked right for that herd. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have do not have a cookie cutter system. So we have some sites that have off-site nurseries and guilt developers. We have some sites that have on-site guilt developers. And so you're not going to make the same protocol from a mycoplasma elimination standpoint based on just some of our facility designs. And then at, at during that time frame, there were just tons of lessons learned in based on your guilt flow design, the timing of it relative to PERS, how were you gonna expose animals? What was the plan for getting that, um, what you'll hear me on other conversations call your day zero from a mycoplasma elimination perspective. There was a lot of complexity in that. And frankly, at the time, we didn't have that uh, core health document approach to mycoplasma eliminations when we started this process. But there's been tons of lessons learned along the way to think about how we do that efficiently, cost-effective um, from an animal care, animal welfare, and efficiency standpoint, too. And 
throughout that experience, should there be a, a one or two or three kind of non-negotiables that regardless of the protocol, this one or two or three things you have to make sure you implement? Yeah, it's a great question because we did a lot of retrospective look at ourselves in the last few years and said, okay, what were our lessons learned? What were the non-negotiables moving forward? And so one of those non-negotiables for us moving forward is a guilt exposure program. Um, there were tons of experiences from utilizing intratracheal inoculation to fogging pigs uh, to also having a live animal exposure. And when we did some retrospective analysis of our closures, we found that some of those things were more successful than others. And so I think we've been very open to say, you've got to do that day one. And our our team has really thought that the aerosolized exposure of mycoplasma worked for us. But I would tell you in, uh, in conversations with others, as we talked about this, I think that's because frankly, there was a lot of luck in our process and we had a strain of mycoplasma that was able to move through aerosolized exposure and could make pigs positive from it. I don't know that that works in all cases. And we just mm -hmm. happen to have a strain mm -hmm. of mycoplasm in our system that made that for us a non-negotiable. I think the other thing we learned was the timing of closure. So how many weeks you are going to stop gill entries on your closure was extremely important for us. We obviously, when you close herds, you shut down your gill introduction and thus impacts your, your performance, your parity structure on your farm. And so in the early stages, we weren't consistent about the week timeline that we would close herds for mycoplasma because frankly, we didn't know how long you could get away or how long you had to keep those closed. So that's become a non-negotiable for us on that timing. The third probably non-negotiable is um, the antibiotic choices during our closures and what we find, whether it be through um, a feed-medicated antibiotic, a water-soluble and or injectable, we have in general in our system some non-negotiables about what antibiotics we would use and what timing and what route, just based on our internal retrospective retrospective data as it comes to what worked for us in our system mm -hmm. during those closures as well. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Manshaw, during these, throughout this process of elimination, uh, I think you have to deal with a lot of pitfalls that could happen like during this process. And one of them you mentioned it was first virus outbreaks during the elimination, but could you share another pitfall that happened during this elimination process? Yeah, I think a couple other pitfalls I can think of uh, was uh, just specifically looking through some of our antibiotic choices and finding that happy medium from an economic cost of a closure versus the success of it. And another honestly huge pitfall we've learned during this was mycoplasma can find a way to move between sites. So when you think about other uh, diseases, we historically always thought about mycoplasma as an endemic disease. But mycoplasma for our system today, when I reference conversations with others, for the mash-offs, mycoplasma is an epidemic disease for us. When we have a mycoplasma outbreak, it is a bad day in our system because we have went through that process and put those dollars into elimination in our breed to wean herds and frankly are seeing the benefits in our growing pig population as well. 
So the big lesson learned for us is there's more to learn about mycoplasma, specifically as it comes to how mycoplasma moves. There's been so much research on how we can move uh, Delta Corona and PED and PERS from one side to the other. But one of the pitfalls we learned is we've had herds that have rebroke with mycoplasma and thinking through some of the biosecurity aspects that may be different for this pathogen versus others has been a big lesson learned for us. We've went through those reclosures just because that's been a system establishment that we are going to eliminate mycoplasma and or control to a stability piece of it. That would be probably our biggest lesson learned. The other one is how we think through the economic timing of when we're going to do those closures. We've learned how to manage mycoplasma differently through guilt acclimation, vaccine application, antibiotics as well. So just because a herd rebreaks doesn't mean that we may jump to elimination tomorrow. There may be a strategic timeline based on the industry, um, wholesale pricing, pig pricing, that we time that strategically as well because we can use those tools that the, the pharmacy pharma industry has provided us more strategically than we probably could before too. That's that's great shedding out that. And <clears throat> I was wondering here, the million dollar question, well, we went out of this process of elimination, but how do you keep that out? Any advice on monitoring and surveillance after we reach that stage of being free of mycoplasma, how keep that out of from your farms? It's a great question because I would love to keep it out. Um, moving <laughs> forward, my running joke with our team a lot of times is I used to be somebody that like we would I'd get really excited in our quarterly health team meetings because I like talking about mycoplasma. It's a pathogen that we can win against. And frankly, I'd keep hoping that it goes that direction um, because we have just learned that because it can move between herds, we have got to establish something for our system that's a health uh, health assurance plan. Um, I am passionate about how similar to how we approach um, preventing other epidemic diseases from entering our farms that we have to think and continue to treat mycoplasma similar to those pathogens and find the management practices that work for mycoplasma as well. So one thing, uh, Giovanni, that we've done is uh, utilize some of the research papers that I actually I came out of um, ISU. I think one of uh, Maria's grad students had a, a paper on the sensitivity of mycoplasma and your risk factor of like how many tracheal swabs you would need to detect at what prevalence that it hits that population. And so we've utilized some of those um, research studies that have came out to decide what's our risk factor for guilt entry into our herds. So we have a health assurance program for our multiplication and guilt development units and what frequency at what test we're gonna use prior to animal movement into isolations that we feel comfortable with today that may not stop every entry, but it's definitely going to mitigate the risk, similar to how we would apply utilizing oral fluids for um, testing guilt prior to entry relative to PERS or the coronaviruses. Yeah, thanks for the, for the, for the great discussion, guys. Uh, final question for, for our guest today. Dr. Mashoff, do you have a, a final message to the swine industry regarding mycoplasma elimination? Why the swine industry should go towards elimination? 
I think uh, my final comment would be that uh, there are epidemic diseases that are frustrating that we don't have all the answers for today. But for mycoplasma, my gut tells me this is one of those pathogens that we can win against. So I think that we need to work towards industry collaboration to eliminate mycoplasma, not only from an economic impact to our businesses in the industry, but also from a sustainability and antibiotic stewardship perspective because I think there is just a lot of good information out there that tells us this is a pathogen we can win against. Great. Thanks for, for accepting our invitation and being here today. And that was it, guys. Thanks, and see you guys next month in the next report. Thanks. Thanks.